Welcome to the Grit and Wit podcast, a show for ambitious female business owners that want to grow irresistible brands. If you're running a business and juggling family commitments and often your sanity, well, you're in the right place. I'm Liz from Elevate and I'm your host. I'll be chatting with inspiring guests who are sharing their stories and practical advice to help you navigate the highs and lows of building a business with grit and wit. Hello, welcome to the show. So this week I'm joined by Anna, who's a website designer. And Anna and I work really closely together as part of my Elevate business. Um, She's designed beautiful, intuitive websites for lots of my clients. So I thought it'd be a really good idea to invite Anna onto the show to talk about all things website and to hopefully answer some questions. So I hope you enjoy the show. It's great to have you here, Anna. Thank you for joining me today on the Grit and Wit podcast. We're going to start, if that's okay, by talking a little bit about your background. So would you mind telling us how long you've been running your business? Yeah, sure. So I've been running it for the last five years. Before that, I was working as a marketing assistant for a software company. And before that, I kind of did some CIM, Chartered Institute of Marketing courses, learning about all things marketing. So that's kind of my background. And also while I was working for this company, I kind of taught myself website design and I'd always been interested in it from a young age. So that's why I kind of thought, oh, I'm going to start a website design business on the side. And yeah, I've been running it for five years, still doing website design, doing a bit of branding. um, But I've also kind of branched out to do a lot of e-courses as well and marketing resources for my target audience as well. So what motivated you to kind of start with the website business rather than it being kind of a side hustle? What made you take the leap to kind of going full time with it? Yeah, so I kind of, I was teaching myself kind of as a hobby, I guess, for years. And then I guess I saw, I've always had parents who were self-employed. And so that's always kind of been in my head as something that I really wanted to do and run my own business. So I started working at it as a side hustle and I got more and more clients and more people were interested in what I was doing. And so then, yeah, I kind of took a leap. I said to my boss, I really want to do this. Sorry, I love you and I love the company, but I really just want to kind of take this out on my own. And they actually offered me to go down to part-time, which was so helpful. It was amazing. So I was able to kind of work there two days a week whilst building my business for the other kind of three days a week and over the weekends. And then I just built it up enough that I could leave and go full-time eventually, which was, yeah, that was a really helpful stepping stone. Definitely to be able to earn some money to have that guaranteed income whilst you're kind of doing the thing that you're trying to build is is the, the, the dream, isn't it? You're living the dream. <laughs> so did you have to do kind of much work for free or were you originally getting people through that were the paying customers? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I do get asked a lot, you know, by small business owners and people who are just starting out like should I give away my services for free and stuff like that and to be honest I did in the beginning because I obviously was working at a nine to five already I had that guaranteed income so I did have the opportunity to be able to do stuff for free kind of in my evenings and weekends Um, and that's how I built a portfolio so I think The very first thing that I did was I ran a giveaway to win a brand design service. And at the time it was, I was doing it for a lot cheaper anyway, kind of my starting prices were super low anyway, but 
I wanted to give it away because what I was able to do in running that giveaway was collect email addresses from people who were therefore validated as people who wanted a brand design or they wanted help starting up their new business with a new logo and things like that. So it kind of killed two birds with one stone. I got to build my portfolio and I got to build a little email list of kind of validated potential clients, if you like, which was really good. So I did that for free. um, And I think I did like a friend's website or like a family member's website as well for free, just to kind of get something in my portfolio. And then I started charging from then on. That's a, it's a really good tip, I think, actually, to do some kind of giveaway because, you know, you're giving something for free, but you're making people understand that there is a value to it as well. And to be able to build up an email list initially is, is gold dust, isn't it, really, to be able oh, to do that? Cool. Would you say that you started off with some kind of ethos for the brand? Did you decide early on that there was any particular way that you wanted to work? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the very first things that I decided was I always wanted to work with small businesses and potentially mostly solo business owners and freelancers who just by that nature tend to have smaller budgets than bigger clients and big companies with team members and things like that. So that was something that I always had to keep in mind when setting my prices was to make sure that I was always affordable for the people that I wanted to work with. And it's been quite funny because I do get comments from people sometimes saying, oh, you know, you can raise your prices. They're really low. Like you could make them way higher and stuff like that. But I've always said, you know, I really want to work with the types of clients that I work with now, which are smaller and they don't have bigger budgets, but that's who I enjoy working with the most. And I think for me, that's a priority. So that's why I kind of keep my prices low. So typically, who would be your ideal customers? Who do you tend to work with the most? Uh, Obviously, the smaller businesses, but what kind of businesses are you talking about? So usually creative businesses, mostly, as I said, freelancers. These typically tend to be people who are maybe starting out a photography business, interior designers, other kind of brand designers or graphic designers. Yeah, a lot of different businesses. I have worked with people who maybe aren't in the creative spaces. I've done quite a few kind of spa websites, consultants websites. I know that we both worked with a client, didn't we, who's an author as well. So kind of anyone who's in that kind of creative area, I suppose. I mean, obviously, I I know the answers to some of these questions (laughs) because obviously our clients are often one and the same. But I will ask them for the benefit of our listeners. Typically, kind of what problems would people be facing before they come to you when they're trying to set up their own website or, you know, making a decision for who to pick, for instance? Sure. I think a lot of people that come to me have often started trying to design their own and do it kind of the DIY way, but have got frustrated, usually finding that it takes a lot of time and there's like a very steep learning curve. Even a platform like Squarespace, which is what I specialize in, which is typically a lot easier than designing on WordPress and things like that. Even then, it's still a learning curve for people who maybe maybe aren't so technical, which um, a lot of my target audience are just not very technical people. They don't want to spend hours at a computer. They want to be in their business, running their business. So that's a struggle that a lot of people have kind of come to me like, I've set this up, but I don't know how to do this. And I just need a professional to take it over and just run with it, basically. Another one is people not really being sure about the technical side of things. So whether they maybe need a developer versus a designer and kind of 
making sure that people know the difference between that. Just as an FYI, the difference is usually a developer will kind of use code to build a website from scratch, creating something completely custom for your needs, whereas a designer will use maybe a template or something that's pre-built and completely customize it using that as a foundation for your needs. So it's having people know the difference between those two things is sometimes an issue that people come across just not being sure about that and which one they need. And things like hosting and domains always kind of gets people confused as well. (laughs) (laughs) I know lots of people I've worked with they find the whole sort of tech side really quite overwhelming and also don't necessarily know what to do in what order. Um, I've actually recently just recorded a podcast about that because I think people sometimes rush. They think they need to get their website done straight away, but perhaps they haven't done the kind of thought process behind the brand, the sort of brand foundation work that I do. And then perhaps they haven't got their branding in place or their photography or any of the things they might need to give to a website designer, which we can come on to a little bit later. I think it'd be a really good idea if we could just talk a sort of a top level about the different platforms. So somebody who maybe is starting a new business or thinking about changing their website, they want to refresh. Could you just talk us through the different options that somebody would have and the sort of differences perhaps between those different options? Yeah, sure. So there's basically two different options you have with setting up a website. You can go self-hosted, which means that you basically need to buy a hosting package from a hosting company and install a website onto that. And it means that you're in charge of kind of managing all the updates and security and things like that. Um, all yourself. So that's self-hosted. And then the other option is managed hosted. So this is where that you would pay a company to basically take care of all the updates and security and all the management of um, your website for you. So with self-hosted, you would be paying for the hosting company and usually you'd be paying for a domain name as well. But usually the actual website, building your website is free usually. Whereas with managed hosting, as I said, you're paying a company to kind of look after things for you. But that usually includes the hosting price. So sometimes you can find managed hosting is a little bit more expensive. um, And sometimes you can find that it kind of evens out because when you're When you have a self-hosted website, because you've got to do so much of it yourself, you often, if you're not that technical, might find that you need to hire some technical help in to come and help you do updates, or you might need to pay extra for different plugins to add different features to your website. Whereas usually a, a managed hosted platform will have all that included in the price. So oftentimes it evens out. Um, So that's usually not the main difference. The main difference is just the ease of use. So, for example, a self-hosted website would usually be run on WordPress. That's the most common platform. And a managed hosted website, there's a few different options. But, for example, Wix and Squarespace are both examples of that. So you're paying Wix to manage your website, paying for the hosting all in one. You're paying Squarespace for all of those things all in one. Whereas self-hosted, you're paying a hosting company and then just installing WordPress on it and building it. I don't know if that <laughs> helps or makes sense. That that definitely makes sense. Uh, it makes sense to me because I understand websites. But I wonder if some of our listeners have been a bit lost on that in the sense that when we're talking about a domain name, we're talking about 
your sort of place on the internet, aren't we? Your kind of home, your space. So is that right? Is that how you describe it? So your domain name is kind of the name of your website. I'd say your hosting is probably more in that metaphor, more kind of your home because your domain name is what basically it's called. So for example, byrosanna.co.uk is a domain name. And then if people go to that, then they see your website, which is your online home, which is on your website hosting. Yeah. So your domain name is basically pointing to where the the website is. So I think your explanation of self-hosted versus managed hosted was very clear. So just to kind of recap on that then. So the self-hosted websites are things like WordPress and the managed hosted would be the Wix, the Squarespace. So if we were to say, I imagine that a lot of people listening will think that the self-hosted WordPress site, from what you said, sounds more complicated and more sort of time uh, intensive. And it sounds like you probably would need more help with that. I mean, I've had a go at doing a WordPress website myself and I, you know, I am quite techie, but I found it really difficult, very clunky and sort of the back end of it. So when you're trying to update things like put in blog posts or new photos, I found it very tricky. And I'm sure it's one of those things that once you know how it's easy, but I think the learning curve is very steep for that. And as you say, it's the kind of upkeep of it, isn't it? So the managed hosted types of sites, if we could just talk a little bit more about that. So you're specific to Squarespace, you design on Squarespace, although I think you used to do WordPress, is that correct? Yeah, so I did used to work on both, but basically I was finding that exactly like you, my target clients were finding it very, very clunky. I think if you're a very visual person or a creative, it's not very intuitive at all. It is kind of more set up for techie people and stuff like that. Whereas Squarespace, the reason why I've moved over completely to that is the ease of use. And a lot of my clients, if they've been on WordPress before, they'll go onto Squarespace and say, it's a breath of fresh air, basically, because everything's kind of drag and drop it's very light it's very bright it's very visual everything you can kind of see in a preview area so that you can see what's being edited at what time and it all just kind of makes sense for a very like visual or creative person basically and with the differences then between the platforms so if somebody was trying to make a choice for a managed hosted website and they're looking at perhaps Wix, Squarespace, Shopify. Could you give us a kind of overview of that decision-making process, the kind of things that you'd think about before picking one? Sure. So I usually say if we start with Shopify, because I think that's quite a clear-cut answer, is if you are setting up an e-commerce website and you're going to have lots of products, usually I'd say kind of over 50 to 80 products or more, If you're planning on a big shop like that, I definitely say that Shopify is the way forward. In terms of e-commerce platforms, you can't really beat Shopify. It connects with everything. There's tons and tons of plugins and features that are built in and that you can add on. I, I mean, so many online shops these days, you wouldn't believe are actually built on Shopify. It's just kind of Yeah, it's just known as being the best option for big e-commerce shops. If you are setting up something that's a little bit smaller, maybe you plan to have kind of, I don't know, less than 20 or 20 to 30 products maximum, you might want to look at setting up on Squarespace instead. I've never actually used the e-commerce tools in Wix, so I wouldn't be able to comment on that. But with Squarespace, I personally just find it a lot more, again, user-friendly and intuitive than, um, than Shopify. Shopify, again, 
it does have sometimes those drag and drop elements. Um, a lot of it is kind of set up similarly to WordPress in that you would need some kind of basic technical knowledge to get set up on it, or you would look to pay someone to help you get set up on it. Whereas Squarespace, you could technically set yourself up on it and it's very easy to learn. The other benefit of Squarespace is in comparison to Shopify and Wix is that it's a closed system. And what I mean by that is that in Squarespace, you've got possibly about 50 templates to choose from as a foundation and you can customize them as much as you want and make them totally different. But you've got about 50 templates and every single one of those templates has been designed by Squarespace. And that's the same with their plugins. And what I mean by a plugin is just something that adds a feature to your website. So the feature to add e-commerce or adding a newsletter or adding pop-ups, things like that. That's what I mean by a plugin. All of those are created by Squarespace and they're all kind of within that Squarespace fee that you pay. No one else is designing them. It's all made to work together. Meanwhile, when you have Shopify and Wix, basically anyone can create a template and anyone can create a plugin. And there is a pro to that. That means that, you know, there's probably possibly more and an infinite number of possibilities that you could add to both those platforms. However, it also means that you can get some very bad quality ones. And it's not always very easy to see whether a template or a plugin has been built in a good way or not from the outset if you're purchasing it or if you're downloading it or installing it onto your website. So sometimes you'll find that if you have a Shopify website and you buy a template from someone who's built it themselves, the code might not be very good quality. You might then get bugs and errors on your website. It might also not work very well with certain other plugins that you install and there'll be errors there. And all that kind of stuff can go wrong with Shopify and Wix because like I said, anyone can create them and it doesn't matter how good their coding skills are. Whereas Squarespace, it's all closed in. They are constantly adding features and they have got kind of all the features that you would expect and need to have even for an e-commerce website but it's all made by them so it's all built to work together really really smoothly that was a really long-winded way of answering but those are kind of the pros and cons between those platforms yeah I think it's quite clear I mean and I'm always kind of big on analogies and an analogy that I kind of think of as as you're talking about that is the difference between perhaps buying a car where you're getting it factory finished with the brand I don't know the VW sat nav and the CD player and everything all built in versus shopping for those things afterwards once you've bought the basic car and having all the options being able to buy from anybody but of course you've got no idea about the quality and how it will actually work with your particular car setup it's that sort of analogy is that right yeah yeah I know that sounds really good I might use that actually (laughs) (laughs) okay so when somebody's considering sort of the different platforms and they're thinking about whether they should go for the WordPress, the Squarespace, Shopify, Wix, what are the other kind of considerations in terms of the limitations? So if they like the sound of this, they think, oh, Squarespace sounds like it's the right thing for me. Could you kind of enlighten us a little bit about any limitations? Obviously, the products, you said 20 to 30 products and above, you would really want to be looking at Shopify if there's any more than about 30. So if if somebody's got lots of products to sell, then perhaps Squarespace is not for them. Are there any other reasons that it might not be for them? 
Yeah, so the key thing with the e-commerce is just Squarespace, it does have a lot of features and they are, as I said, adding lots more. But there are some things that you can't do on it, such as filtering products with multiple different filters and variables, adding things like color swatches. You can have customers create accounts on there, but they can't save things to kind of like a wish list or things like that. And all of these types of examples are things that you can do on Shopify. And that's not to say that with some really advanced custom code, you can add that to Squarespace yourself. But there are some limitations on the e-commerce side of things, I would say. Those are kind of the key things. But with Squarespace, you can add on a lot of stuff. So for example, as well, there's no kind of customer reviews feature, but you could use a third party plugin to do that. So as I said, Squarespace is closed um, and everything that's built within Squarespace is by the same developers, but you can add just custom code. So it's not quite the same as on Shopify and Wix and WordPress, where you can buy just a plugin and you don't have to touch the code. It's all kind of done for you. You can hire a developer for Squarespace to come and create custom things for you. And again, you'd probably have to pay a bit extra for that. And there's no guarantee that it would all work perfectly. That depends on the developer's skills, but you can add some functionality into it if there are limitations. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. So there's a few limitations with Squarespace, but I mean, from a kind of customer point of view, my website is now hosted on Squarespace and that's been um, a change that I've made this year, actually, whereas previously I've been on Wix. So I've designed my sites on both of those platforms and understand them fairly well. I think the things that, that I've noticed as being differences is Squarespace resizes things so it's all inbuilt, isn't it? It resizes for mobile phones, for instance. So your website will be resized automatically. And it seems to do a very, very good job on that. Whereas with Wix, once you've designed your website for your desktop, and then it needs to resize for mobile, often it kind of jumbles up the website and things overlap. So you have to pretty much go back in and redesign it again on the mobile version. So you're almost having to design your site twice. Um, And if you want to go in and make a quick change, it can be quite annoying because you often forget that you have to go in and have a look at the mobile version too, uh, especially if you're in a bit of a rush. And then often you're then looking at it later on your mobile and you're like, oh, I forgot to do the mobile version. Whereas with Squarespace, that's not really an issue. The other thing with um, Wix, I mean, I, I found the learning curve on both to be quite straightforward. I think there is probably more to learn on Wix. I found that sort of the interface, there's a drag and drop interface on Wix, which is actually initially, I think, easier to understand than the Squarespace uh, where you have to use sort of spaces. But now that I understand both, I find them equally as simple as each other, really. It's really interesting to get that perspective. And I think especially about the mobile point that you raised is like mobile first is such a big thing at the moment to design your website, really focusing on it for mobile. And that really depends on your business's kind of target audience and how they are kind of browsing the internet and how they might come across your website For some people, it's more likely they'll come across it on a desktop. For some people, it's more likely they'll come across it on mobile. But you always, always have to have mobile in your head all the time. And I think, like you say, that's such a good thing about Squarespace is they basically design all of their templates and all of the foundation of what they do to look really good on mobile all the time. And you can't, yeah, there's it's really hard to kind of 
mess it up <laughs> if you're working yeah up. exactly the, the spacing of it all is very nice whereas Wix you're basically having to create that spacing yourself you're doing a lot more design I feel with Wix than you are with Squarespace the Squarespace templates themselves are much sort of nicer and easier to work with the only limitation I have noticed between the between the two in terms of Squarespace really is that with Wix you can save stuff as you go so you can go in and you can edit your site you might want to add a a different photo or you you know might want to change your blog post some text and then the phone rings or the doorbell goes and you want to just save those changes and not lose them but you don't want to necessarily publish them because you haven't finished you can do that on Wix but I'm not sure that you can do that on Squarespace I think every time you save it it kind of actually goes live and publishes it is that right? Yeah, sure. So it is kind of you're working on a live preview, basically. So every time you save it, it does update the live site as well. One workaround for that would be to you can go into a page's settings and click duplicate, and it will create a copy of that page. And then you can kind of hide that and work on that page to make any edits that you want to do and then kind of switch the pages over or replace them once you're ready to update that design. That's a clever idea. I hadn't thought of doing that. Thank you. (laughs) I shall do that from now on. Let's flip this round now. So from a website designer's point of view, so from your point of view, what does somebody need to have to, what do they have to have when they come to you for you to be able to kind of create them a good site? So the best thing is when I have your clients come to me and they (laughs) their brown foundations work done and they are super clear about their target customer they're super clear about kind of their whole goals and purpose with their website and what they want to get across with it that's really really helpful to just have done some of that work beforehand when I do work with clients I do send them a questionnaire which has got questions such as you know go into more detail about your target customer and your goals and stuff like that but sometimes people will just fill that in as fast as they can in five minutes and not pay that much attention to it. And it's just so nice when people have taken that time to go through each of those things. The other thing is actually having their brand design done. And that's not just having a logo. Some people think that's all that brand design encompasses, but it's actually, you know, all sorts of things, including your color palette and your fonts. And if someone comes to me and they've got all of that written down in some kind of a style guide that makes it so much easier for me to create a website that I know that they're going to like and it stops us from having so many revisions it makes the whole process quicker because I know what I'm doing from the outset I'm not just kind of guessing at what they'll like and then sending it to them and then they say oh actually no can we change this color a little bit or tweak this font having that all done beforehand is makes the whole process so much quicker and so much smoother And the other thing is, yeah, having photography that's either professionally done or something that you've actually spent a lot of time working on is so important. Imagery just makes such a massive difference to websites. I get so happy when I get clients who come to me and they've got a proper folder of professional images that they've come up with because it just makes the website look super professional. To kind of use an analogy, Liz, it's like if you had your car and then it's a brand new car, but then you can kind of put, I don't know, like really old wheels on it or I don't know, you can probably come up with a way better analogy than that. (laughs) But something like just when you're paying a professional to create a website for you and then you put in some kind of 
cheap stock photography or some kind of home done stuff that doesn't look as professional you're really watering down that kind of professional look that you've just paid a designer to do so professional photography is so nice to work with and something that I definitely encourage people to be prepared with beforehand I think you're right I mean I would say that obviously <laughs> being a photographer as well but I I think that the, the the difference is that the photography that you can create for yourself as in when you work with a professional is very bespoke isn't it so it can really convey a lot of the kind of brand values that you're trying to um, show your clients that are going to be visiting your website it all of that is done on a quite a subliminal level so having your own photos that are really high quality that are sort of talking to your ideal client because it's all the things that are in the picture the props the colors the clothes the location all of those things will either resonate with somebody or they won't and we're all such visual creatures that we're all making our buying decisions really based on you know a very 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 short attention span and just sort of seeing something does it feel right does it look like it's the right fit for me and like you say I think that the the rest of the site could be really beautiful but if the photography is off that would be a real sticking point for people so if people can't afford to perhaps get their own sort of photos created I often say that the places I would recommend a, a, a photo libraries like Unsplash, for instance. Would you recommend using Unsplash on your website? I mean, some of them have been used a lot and will be recognisable as being kind of free stock photos. Uh, what else would you recommend people look at? Sure. So things like Unsplash can be really good. As you say, sometimes a lot of those photos have been used by other people. You can often tell if something is a stock photo as well, because it may not fit with your kind of brand style as consistently as a professional photo might do. The other thing that I would advise with looking at free stock photography websites, that's websites that offer photography on a CC0 license. So that's basically saying that anything on this website you can use for personal and commercial use and you can change it however you like. You don't have to give credit. It's just free to use. The risk with these websites is that anyone can upload to them and you're not always going to be sure that that person has got permission to just essentially give away the copyright to use that image. A lot of the time it's absolutely fine and it is just the photographer uploading it and they've got all the permission they need and that's fine. But a lot of the time, especially with having people's faces in kind of free stock photography, those people will have had to sign a model release and they may not have given that away as part, part of that CC0 copyright license, basically. So a lot of photos with people in, you've got to be a bit careful of. So tread carefully with the kind of free stock photo sites because you're not always sure where they've come from and if they are actually allowed to be kind of given away copyright right free. The best option if you do want to look at stock photography rather than paying a professional is to look for a premium stock website kind of like iStock or Shutterstock. You do have to pay per photo and you can buy kind of the license that you need, but then you kind of have you're safe in the knowledge that you are actually allowed to be using that photo and you know that they've gone through a checking process to make sure that you are fully allowed to use it. That's all I'd say on the um, stock photography side of things. So just moving on a little bit now. So thinking about the key things that people love to kind of see on a website, when you're designing a site for somebody, what are those kind of key things that you're always keeping in mind? And what would you advise people if they're going to be designing their own site that they should keep in mind? 
Sure. There's a few kind of top things. The first one is to have a really nice, clear navigation with not too many options. So by navigation, I mean kind of the menu at the top that might say home, about, contact, things like that. In kind of website design, there's a rule that says that a rule of thumb that says you should kind of aim for seven options and no more than that in your main navigation area. If you go over seven, it tends to look quite overwhelming and people aren't really sure what options to choose and it can look quite messy. So kind of keeping it to seven or less options at the top. You can also obviously have drop downs with more options on those, but just having that kind of top level bar not look too cluttered is really important just so that people can navigate around easily obviously professional photography is really nice but um, in particular having photos of you if you are a solo business owner if you are a freelancer and you know your business is about you and what you are offering to people this is so important people need to see a face so that they can kind of get that trust element and make sure that you're a legit business um, and people just connect better with humans rather than just corporate companies that they're not really sure who owns them and stuff like that so true people buy from people don't they exactly Um, yeah yeah absolutely as well as that social proof so this is things like testimonials reviews you could have kind of pictures of logos of companies that have featured you or you've worked with things like that people like to see because it kind of makes them think oh if that person's worked with them or if that brand's worked with them then you know maybe it's going to work out for me if they see testimonials then people can just get a feel that your brand is actually legit again it's just kind of building that sense of authority that you're actually a real business I guess and on that note as well making sure that you've actually got all the kind of legal considerations of having a website sorted so making sure you've got your privacy policy having a cookies kind of pop up and making sure you're asking visitors about cookies these are all things that are like you legally need to have on your website but it also just kind of gives the visitor just that little thought of oh yeah no they're they're a serious business and they can be taken seriously and options to contact you is always a good idea rather than just a contact form people like to see kind of other things not necessarily a phone number or an address but at least an email address so that if your contact form isn't working for example they can still contact you I think the contact form thing as well is interesting because I know from personal experience, when I use a website, if there's a contact form and it disappears, I'm never, you know, you fill it out and you send it and it it pings off. You're never quite sure if it's actually got there or which address it's gone to, or there's a bit of sort of uncertainty around that. So I would always prefer to email from my own personal email account. So I think that's a a good tip there. So if you've got a, a website and you've got a kind of front homepage, how many options to kind of contact or to buy how many sort of calls to action would you suggest is about right for a, for a website homepage for a homepage it's a difficult one obviously you've got technically your calls to action up at the top and sometimes on some websites you could turn the contact option of your menu into a button or some kind of button that says book now that's at the top usually i'd say no more than kind of 2 to 3 on your homepage most often people will have a newsletter sign up and maybe a kind of not a get in touch but a view my services or kind of find out more about my services because i think if people are landing on your homepage the first call to action that they see 
it's probably not going to be very effective if it is get in touch because they haven't found out more about you yet. They haven't kind of learned what you do and gotten into that mindset of, oh yeah, this is what this person does. I want to work with them yet. They haven't reached that point yet. So there's no point in having kind of contact me as a initial call to action on your homepage. I personally don't think. So yeah, usually I'd say kind of two to three, maybe a email newsletter sign up so that people can join your list and join your community and find out more about you. And then obviously going off to one of your pages, whichever is most important to you. So maybe one of your services pages or an about page, if that's particularly important. And you can always test it as well. There are some websites and tools that you can use that allow you to track people's movement around your homepage. And it's like a heat map. So it can see where the mouse has gone and what it's been clicking on and things like that. There's one called Hotjar, which you can just sign up for and it will start tracking people's movements around your homepage, which can be really, really interesting in terms of knowing what calls to actions to put on there. That's, uh, yeah, that's a really good tip actually, isn't it? To see how people are using your site. And I think also when you've designed a site or you've had it designed, I always suggest that people give it to somebody who has no experience of their business to have a a play and to kind of almost watch over their shoulder if you can to see how they are actually using the site and moving through it and to see if they are kind of going in the pattern that you would expect them to or whether they're sort of disappearing off down a bit of a rabbit hole on your site and not knowing quite how to get back so yeah such a good point I mean um get your mum to look at it or (laughs) feel that that customer kind of journey is how you want people to use your site rather than yeah like you say people can just get lost sometimes if it's not set up right are there any other kind of big mistakes that people make when they're creating their own website I think the key one is obviously the legal side of things, as I mentioned, making sure that you've got that privacy policy in your cookies banner and pop up, which is this is something that you have to have now because of the GDPR laws and stuff like that. So that's a big thing that I see people not doing. um, And it's, you know, you're taking a risk by not having those things there. The other main thing is white space so in design when we talk about white space we basically just mean giving space to things and having space around elements it doesn't necessarily have to be white and I think when you're not a designer and you don't have that eye it can be quite hard to know how much space to give elements and to have around different areas of your website but that's where a designer can help with their knowledge. And that's also, like you said, with Squarespace's templates that they've already built, that are pre-built, they've been designed by proper designers and the white space is all there and it's very clean and open feeling. So that's already included in a lot of Squarespace templates, but it's something that if you were starting from scratch or editing it heavily, I can see a lot of people don't use enough of that. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, I think in photography, we call that white space negative space. And I think that any time you sort of incorporating that white or negative space into a design or a photo, you are elevating it really. You're kind of giving the viewer or the person that's looking at your website, you're giving them a bit of room to breathe. And it just makes the whole thing feel so much more high end than when everything's all crammed in together. We are sort of almost you know, vomiting onto the page, all the information that you want them to to read. It's it's not a nice user experience. So I completely agree with you there. 
let's move a little bit on to costs now, if that's okay. So what would people expect to kind of pay? And can you just outline the costs that are involved? You've obviously talked about the idea of the self-hosted versus the managed hosted. So we won't go back into that. We'll just really talk more on the Squarespace costs. What additional costs would somebody have to factor in beyond perhaps working with a designer like yourself? Sure. So obviously the actual design fee can be so different depending on the designer. I would say mine's kind of the cheaper end and more affordable, like I said, but people can charge thousands even for Squarespace website design. And it depends kind of how much experience someone's got, their style, how much custom coding they're adding into it and things like that. But on top of the actual design fees, you've basically just got a fee that you will need to pay for your domain name. Um, So that's, as I said, it's like having byrosanna.co.uk. You have to pay for that. It's usually no more than 10 to 20 pounds a year. That's kind of the cheapest part um, of having a website, just having the name for it, basically, that points to your actual website. When it comes to Squarespace's fees, as I mentioned, that includes hosting. So it's kind of like an all-in-one fee. You shouldn't need to pay for anything else. You shouldn't need to pay for any extra plugins or templates or anything else in that. It's all included. And that can range from, I think it's 10 pounds a month for their kind of personal plan, which is for much smaller websites with less customization options. And then it goes kind of up to their business plan, which I think is around 16 to 18 pounds a month, which is what most of my clients tend to be on, unless they've got an online shop, and then they've got a couple of different payment options for if you're doing e commerce. So I think that just goes, I think the top price is around £35 a month for their advanced e-commerce plan. And basically what that does is just give you all of their kind of customization and all of their e-commerce features that you could ever possibly want. And it will include all of your hosting, which all of those packages include as well. So you shouldn't need to pay anything else other than your domain, which is done separately, and your Squarespace fee. That should all be included. What about um, an email address? Is that an additional fee? I think you get it free, don't you, for the first year on some of the business plans? Yeah. So if you wanted to set up a professional email address, so for example, instead of rosanna at gmail.com, you wanted to contact at by Rosanna, you can either buy that in with your domain name. You can actually buy kind of web packages that are all included with that um, with whoever you buy your domain from. So that's things like GoDaddy or 123reg, things like that. You can buy packages that are included all together. Or you can pay for things like G Suite, which is what I would recommend. And G Suite is, I think it's like three to five pounds a month. And you can get a year of that for free if you buy it through Squarespace as well. So the website design fee then, can you just tell us a little bit about your fees and how you structure things? Yeah, sure. So I've got basically two packages that I kind of use as as for a starting point. My starter package is £750 and that's kind of for just a starting point. And then my premium package is £1,150, which is more like eight to 10 pages. You can add a booking system. We can add a blog. We can add e-commerce, things like that. And then I've got kind of things done more a la carte. So if you had the starter package and you wanted to add a blog, then I can do that. And that would just be like a small additional cost and things like that. So I kind of use those two packages as bases. And then usually I'll speak to a client and then they'll say, 
they'll tell me what pages they want and we'll create a custom quote kind of using those two as starting points, if you see what I mean. See, I think that, I mean, I'm not sure what the perception is, what people listening would imagine that a website would cost. But I think that historically having a website built was so expensive and that there's still a feeling of I couldn't possibly afford a website designer for a lot of people that are starting out or perhaps having this as a sort of side hustle. So it might be quite reassuring to hear those costs because actually when you consider how long it might take somebody to set up their own site and to kind of go on that learning curve to learn how to use Squarespace or Wix or whichever one they go for, the amount of time that that's going to take is going to take them out of their business or that's that's not time that they're fee earning, is it? So I think that those, you know, outsourcing the design part, those costs, that's all the time that you could be earning money in your business and somebody else can be doing the design. So I think it's a, it's a really, you know, really good thing that you're happy, you're happy to share those with us. So thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. And I, I'm very pro kind of putting your prices on your website. I've always placed a lot of importance on being transparent. And I think it also means that any contact form inquiries that I get from people, usually they've looked at my prices. So that's not going to be kind of a a roadblock in our discussions. So they've already kind of passed that bridge. So I have less wasted time, I guess, talking with people who maybe it's not the right fit for them and stuff. So yeah, I think putting your web uh, prices on your website and being open about it is always a positive thing. And so, I mean, some people will obviously want to try and build their own sites, but really if, if somebody is coming to you and looking for the design package, so say the hire package, how long is that typically going to take you? I usually suggest for that premium package, usually about four to five weeks. And again, it does depend on, you know, how quickly people get the preparation items to me. So sometimes we'll set a start date and clients don't have everything ready so then that can push it back a little bit Um, and also like I said before if you've got your branding details and information about your fonts and your colors and your branding already done that makes it so much quicker because I know what you like and what the website has to have on it whereas if you don't have that all ready and prepared it might take a bit longer because like I say, I'm going to be sending you drafts of things and you're going to be saying, no, can we tweak the fonts and the colours? And that's going to take a lot of extra time. But if you've got all of the things ready, then around four weeks for kind of the bigger website with 10 pages and a, a shop with a few products in and things like that is usually what I'd suggest. And so some people might not realise that, you know, you and I work quite closely, don't we, with clients. So like you said before, a client will come to me for the brand foundation work and then I will quite quickly ascertain their needs and sort of work out if they're going to need a website, put them in touch with you so then they can book in your time because you're working to a lead time as most of the sort of good suppliers and designers and people are. So I think that the the way that we work is quite interesting for people because the fact that I'm able to hold time with you for my clients and then pass them straight on to you at the same time that they're sort of perhaps working with my brand designer, it means that the timeline is really shortened, isn't it? Rather than, like you say, it being four to five weeks if they're kind of coming to you uh, without having their their brand design and their photography or their their sort of brand foundations done the way that we are able to work together and the sort of crossover means that you're able to work and get the architecture of the site set up from the brand foundations work that I've done which is a four-week process at the same time as the 
design, the brand design, the logo, the fonts, and all the, that stuff is being done by Pam, who's the the designer. So it sort of really shortens. It really does shorten that timeline, and especially compared to if you were using lots of different suppliers who weren't sort of working in a joined up way. You know, you're working to lead times, and then you're also having to have those kind of questions and those battles and forcing things yeah exactly okay so I think that's probably covered most of the stuff that people might be thinking or asking for websites I'm sure there's loads of other questions and obviously we haven't even touched on things like SEO so search engine optimization or any of that sort of stuff but that's all you know a little bit more technical and that's another day so if we could just move sort of on to talking a little bit more about your business could you just sort of tell me a little bit about your your day the way that you work so do you have a kind of most productive time of the day yeah sure so I mean I work from home which is obviously a massive luxury I have got a little room in our house which is all decked out to be my office um, which is really really nice so I usually tend to wake up at about 7.30 is my aim at the moment. I am not a morning person. So sometimes it's a little bit later than that. But that's my aim usually. And then I'll have breakfast um, and get started straight away. Because I would say my most productive time is probably between eight and 10 o'clock. And then usually around 10 or 11 o'clock, I'll go to the gym and or do an exercise class, come home, work again, probably, obviously have lunch and things like that. And then work until around four or five and then go and walk the dogs that's kind of my ideal day because I think I get a lot of that productive time done in the morning I then usually have another spurt of productiveness after lunch and then I also get to you know work on my health goals my exercise goals and also get time to be outside and usually I get to walk the dogs with my partner as well so that's kind of just nice to have time together as well so that, that's my ideal day and usually usually I do manage to do those things so yeah it's working quite well at the moment sounds lovely <laughs> you don't have children do you I think we should Not speak clear about no. that <laughs> who knows how that would go <laughs> For, for anybody listening that has children, that sounds like the dream day, I think. <laughs> and you, li- you live in Cornwall, don't you? So you're walking the dogs on the beach, maybe? Or? Yeah, usually if I if I can, I'll try and get to the beach. It's about um, 15 minutes away. So that's obviously very nice as well. What kind of dogs do you have? I've got one French bulldog who's called Pepper. And I've got a, um, she's a border cross collie um cross lab or something is my partner's dog and we've kind of paired them together and they're best friends now so yeah (laughs) does your partner work from home too uh yeah he runs a business so he runs a holiday village here in Cornwall so he's kind of working on site and around us all the time so yeah (laughs) it's really nice that we both get to see each other during the day and you managed to do that without killing each other. That's that's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, Hold on to that one. <laughs> well, I've got my own separate office, which definitely helps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a pair of headphones. I always recommend to my clients when they're about to go from working in an office to working at home, especially you know if they have a partner that works at home, definitely get a pair of noise cancelling headphones. It's saved my marriage, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you ever kind of find yourself procrastinating because you are at home? You know, the day you've just outlined sounds fantastic, but I know that I sometimes end up, you know, unloading the dishwasher or putting the washing on or things like that, rather than perhaps getting down to the bit that I should be doing. Do you have that problem or not really? Yeah, I mean, I get, I think 
it's partly a benefit of working from home that you can be here and accept kind of Tesco deliveries and do the laundry and do those things. It's a good thing because otherwise I'd have to cram it into weekends and evenings and stuff. But it does mean that I do have a lot of breaks from work and interruptions, I suppose, rather than breaks. Breaks are good. Interruptions are not good. But yeah, I mean, I think I struggle most in summer because I am in Cornwall and it's such beautiful landscapes and everything. I always want to be outdoors when the weather's nicer. I always want to be by the sea. So that can often tempt me to drag myself away from my laptop. But I think it's just about being disciplined and knowing that when your productive times are and trying to organize things around that. I always suggest to my clients, and I do this myself, that when you've got those productive slots, that you try and turn everything else off. So, you know, you put your phone on silent and you're sort of turning all the notifications off. I guess for you, because you are working on a laptop, perhaps doing that kind of thing is even more important so that you're not constantly having things pop up and and distract you. Do you, I mean, you seem to be very focused to me. (laughs) Do you have any other secret tips that you share? Yeah, funnily enough, I have only just started using a thing called Inbox Pause on my Gmail inbox. That's where all my emails come into. And I think it's a tool called Boomerang or something like that, which has a feature where you can pause your inbox. So I've just started using that so that I can, you know, I have completely dedicated time to something and not have any interruptions. And that's been working really, really well. Um, Before that, I just kind of would yeah, I guess work on something and then still have those interruptions of emails and stuff. But I've always been quite good at focusing. But recently, because I'm working on developing some more e-courses and things like that, I've been finding that I, when I really need to motivate myself to do one thing, I need to turn off my emails completely. So that's a really good tool that I've been using recently. And if you were starting a business today, what would you do differently? It's a really hard question. (laughs) Something that I've always struggled with is asking for help from other people for things. I'm quite stubborn and I'd rather kind of hash it out myself and make mistakes along the way and it be imperfect, but I've worked it out myself kind of person. Um, And I don't know whether that's to do with the kind of being able to be a martyr about it or have pride about doing things myself or whatever. But that's one of my, I would say, flaws. And if I could go back, I think what I would do is try and get more help and advice for people, maybe invest in my business a little bit more, invest in my skills a bit more and actually maybe take on coaching or do some kind of e-course or educational Thing that improves my skills and improves my business and not be afraid to ask for that help or some kind of mentoring things like that and I think that's such an important thing for helping your business to grow and something that I just haven't done enough of basically yeah I think you're right and I think there's a saying isn't there that's different level different devil it's kind of you whichever level you get to in your business there's a there's a whole heap of other things that you know you feel that you need to learn or whatever and I think that being accountable in some kind of sort of a coach or in a a group mentoring sort of situation or something I think is always really really useful as well and obviously Facebook groups are quite good for that if you can be in some groups that are specific to your business or your niche so that you can ask the questions there without sort of feeling stupid that's always quite useful do you do any networking or anything how do you kind of market your business 
Yeah, networking is a hard one. I'm an introvert and I really don't like networking at all. I have actually tried organizing my own networking groups before, which is an absolute nightmare trying to organize people and do events and stuff like that. Um, So I've taken a step back from that. But I do go to kind of local Cornwall networking groups and meetups. I'm actually going to one tomorrow. But I tend to choose things that have got a focused other than networking. So for example, I've been on a networking event where we went stand up paddleboarding at the same time. And I've done kind of climbing wall networking meetups. And the one I'm going to tomorrow is like, we're going to have cocktails and tacos, which is really nice. I want to come to Cornwall. This sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Really cool things. And I think when you're doing networking, it's nice to have that focus point that's something else other than just talking to people because then you can use it as a starting point for conversations if you're a bit nervous so it's very awkward isn't it networking I find very awkward I wouldn't say that uh, you know I, I feel like I'm a fairly confident person I'm not confident standing up in front of a room of people though and delivering my you know one minute speech about myself I feel so cringy apart from anything else so yeah I'm completely with you I would be so happy to go paddleboarding and networking at the same time. I think that sounds brilliant. So I'm oh, yeah. it was a seed so in my mind. <laughs> so where do you find most of your leads come from? Obviously, we work together, so my clients work with you as well. But other than that, where, where how, how are you? You're very active on Instagram, aren't you? And you've got a, a very good blog and your own podcast. So which are the sort of social media platforms that you like the most? Or where do you find you get most of your leads from? Yeah, so obviously having like a referral system like you and I work together, that's really, really helpful. But other than that, at the moment, I get mostly word of mouth. So I'll get people contacting me saying they've seen a website that I've done um, and stuff like that. Also, a lot of it comes through Pinterest. Um, I'm really, really hot on my Pinterest marketing um, and actually released an e-course all about Pinterest marketing last year. Um, And I've been doing that for kind of five years hand in hand with blogging so I usually blog kind of around twice a month um, if not more than that on my byrosanna.co.uk website there's a blog on there that's for freelancers so there's business and marketing posts there's website design posts all kind of things like that which has helped me to have content to share on Pinterest and therefore people find me but it's also really helped my SEO so I get found for things like you know if people are searching in something to do with Squarespace sometimes I'll come up and that's how they find me and get in touch with me so mostly those things Instagram I have been putting a lot of effort into recently but that's mainly for customers for my marketing e-courses rather than my kind of target client for website design typically the inquiries I get coming in from Instagram for website design tend to be people who have a lot lower budgets and are trying to kind of DIY it themselves so maybe they're not exactly the right target customer for me because usually I want to work with people who have got kind of a set aside budget that they've saved for and they don't have the time so they want to pay someone to do it whereas Instagram the leads are slightly different but I'm using Instagram at the moment to kind of build a following for my e-courses that's the main thing. That's interesting. So I know you've got another e-course coming out soon. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So my next e-course is called Email Marketing with Flowdesk. And Flowdesk is basically a new email marketing software, like in comparison with MailChimp, for example, which I am raving about to everyone. It's fantastic. Me too. (laughs) Me too. I love Flowdesk. 
Oh, it's awesome. It's basically like the Squarespace of email marketing software. It's beautiful. All the templates and things are gorgeous, aren't they? Right out of the box. It's so easy to use. Exactly. It's super intuitive, but I do have a lot of clients, people who I've talked to about it that just don't know where to start. And again, there's a small learning curve with it. It's not a big one, but it's still a learning curve. So people just seem to want to understand how to use it best, how to deliver kind of opt-in freebies and how to write email newsletters that convert better and things like that. So there'll be all of that kind of content in it, as well as tutorials on how to use Flowdesk as well. I think the great thing about Flowdesk as well is it's the the bit that is easy, obviously, once you know how, once you've been on your course, <laughs> is the, the the sort of workflow thing, the way you where you can have it. So it will automatically email people if they've perhaps filled in a form on your website or something, and then it'll automatically email them after the, the time that you decide you want them to and then it will automatically email them again at a certain point with something different and you can set that all up in Flowdesk can't you in much the yeah. same way as you can MailChimp which I mean I'm all for automation in a small business I think anything that you can automate is just going to save you loads of time rather than just doing the same things over and over and over but you run your business in a very efficient way as well don't you you seem to sort of book in calls with people you have lots of blog posts on your website which means that if you're trying to explain something to somebody you can send them a link to the to the blog post rather than having to explain it every single time fresh all of those things I think are are really great ways of automating as well so if we could just move on to talking a little bit about money now which is obviously a topic that lots of people find uh, particularly uncomfortable (laughs) especially us women how did you know how to price yourself at the beginning Yeah, it is a hard one. And I think this always comes up as well for any kind of new business is where do you even start with that? I think the main thing is when you're pricing for services, you can do it in two different ways. You can price by the hour and you can price by kind of in packages um, or by the project. And there's pros and cons of both. But um, I think I decided fairly quickly that I wanted to create packages. It's basically easier for people to understand. You can use it as a jumping off point. So once, like I said, once you actually get a scope from a client, you can then adjust the price and kind of add bits on and take things off and stuff like that. But it's a good jumping off point. It makes it really clear because I think a lot of the time, if you say that you're doing things by an hourly rate, people have got no concept of how long things are going to take so it's not very helpful so definitely doing it in packages I knew that I wanted to do I did a lot of research just about what other people were doing in my industry when I started working with Squarespace there weren't that many Squarespace designers in the UK so a lot of them were in the US and had kind of US based pricing so that made it a little bit more difficult but the main thing I would say is just kind of put something out there and see if it works. If you're getting lots of people bite your hand off for it, it means you're probably charging too little. If you're not getting the people that you want, maybe you need to reevaluate it a little bit. So just kind of testing. And every year since I've kind of just made it a rule that I will increase my prices. And that's kind of a standard thing that I do. And I think that's quite common in my industry as well. So clients expect that each year my prices will go up a little bit. So that's given me room to adjust things and test things too. And how is your income kind of made up now, if you don't mind me asking? You obviously you do your website design, the brand, the online courses. Where where were you most profitable? Is it still your website design is the most profitable service for you? 
Yeah, sure. So I think for me, mostly website design, I think it's probably, I would say about 60 to 70% of my income still comes through that. Brand design, much less. I basically just take that on as and when it's needed. But if I'm being totally honest, I really love it when someone else does it and I can work with someone else's branding on a website. I actually really enjoy that. So those together probably make up 75 to 80% of what I do. And then the other amount is things like, yeah, my e-courses that I'm selling. Um, I've just started doing that in the last 12 months. So it's not a huge portion of my income yet, but it's something that's not totally passive. I don't really like the term passive income because it never is. It always takes a lot of work to set things up, but it is, it's not kind of like a a time for money situation. So having e-courses that people can buy, they can buy that without me doing anything, um, anything different per person. So it makes it a little bit more passive and it means that you can scale your business a bit more, um, which is my goal really for this year is to focus on being able to scale my business by adding in more of that kind of slightly somewhat passive (laughs) offerings into my business as well. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I think the... I mean, the idea of an online course is very appealing to lots of people, but obviously there is the time that it takes to create a course and set it all up, uh, plus any kind of ongoing fees in terms of the software that you're using. But just going back a little bit to what you said about the kind of price per hour, and I think this is a trap that lots of people fall into initially, don't they? When they're starting a business, they think, well, I'm going to have to charge X amount per hour. And I mean, I noticed this with lots of interior designers, for instance, they're trying to charge or bill by the hour. And initially people, as you say, have no clue how long a project is going to take. And it's really quite a scary thing being a client of somebody like that, because you just don't know how long this piece of string is going to be. Whereas when things are done on a package basis, then you've got a a much clearer idea up front what the outcome is going to be, what the deliverables are. And actually, it doesn't necessarily matter how long it takes somebody because certainly for for me as a photographer, the more photography shoots I've done over the years, the better I've got, the quicker I've got. So I'm actually really, really efficient, which means that I could shoot something in two hours that might take somebody less experienced a whole day. So if I'm charging by the hour, I'm almost penalizing myself on my own income because for my expertise, so I think that the pricing per hour thing is definitely something that I encourage my clients to try and move away from because also you're very, very limited then on how many hours you have in the day. So to price per outcome is something that I would always encourage. I call it value-based pricing as well. I know that's a term. That's the proper term. (laughs) Yeah, that's the proper term for it. But um, I I try and explain this to people. It's just kind of pricing yourself based on the value that the client is getting from your service or your offering rather than pricing per hour. Like you say, it's so right. If you're charging per hour and you get really good at something, then it's obviously going to take you less time. So you really want to be charging for all your year's worth of experience and what that client is going to be actually getting at the end. So in my head, I feel that around a thousand eight hundred to a thousand pounds is the value that a client will be getting from a website that I design because you know it's going to last them for at least a few years. They're going to be able to direct people to it as their main kind of home for all the information about their business. And they're going to make that money back, aren't they? I mean, they'll, yeah. they'll that money will be made back in the business 
much more quickly if the brand design, the website, everything is looking the way it should do because you're going to get more clients. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a good thing to invest in. So I like to ask people kind of if they have any recommendations, really. Do you have any podcasts that you listen to that you'd recommend other than this one and your own? <laughs> What's your podcast called? It's called The Freelance Fix. Is that right? Yeah, it's called The Freelance Fix. Um, it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever it is. Other than that, yeah, I listen to a lot. But the main one that I'm absolutely loving at the moment is called The Strategy Hour. And it's by um, The Boss Project. And I think if you just type in strategy hour, it will come up. But it's basically two women that I've been following for a, a long time online. They're um, a partnership. They've run several different businesses from a design business to um, I think they do mainly coaching and courses now. But they basically share so much about the runnings of their business. Um, and they're kind of on their way to making to for it becoming a multi-million pound business as well um so it's really really fascinating to just get their kind of inside look at their business it's really really good the strategy hour right i should be looking that up (laughs) what about any books do you read much yeah i well last year i set a challenge to read 12 books in a year bearing in mind that before that i'd read basically none for about five years (laughs) and i read 24 in the end so wow um, yeah i've been making it a priority in the evenings to read books but one of the best ones that i've read recently is definitely mindset by carol dweck which is all about the difference between having a fixed mindset and yeah it's just it's it's brilliant it's all about kind of growth mindsets and fixed mindsets and I have that book <laughs> and you need it it's great <laughs> yeah yeah definitely I'm currently reading they ask you answer uh it's it's interesting it's um it's really about content marketing, inbound marketing. Uh, it's basically this guy that was working for a pool company, swimming pool company, uh, somewhere in America. I think it was Virginia. And the company was not doing very well when he was he was working there. I think it was there was lots of sort of all the financial crash was happening, all that kind of stuff. And he came across this idea of they ask, you answer. So it's really the idea of taking things that your clients are asking you, your customers are asking you all the time, and then putting those answers in a very transparent way onto your website, uh, whether that's on a blog or kind of creating articles in some way, to then basically be the kind of thought leader in your industry. Uh, So he was addressing all the questions that all his competitors were kind of too scared to answer. Uh, and, And he talks a lot about the idea of people think that if you're talking about competitors or the other options that somebody might be looking at, so for instance, we've obviously talked about Squarespace, but we've talked to, as well about Wix and the other options. But I think there's this idea that if you don't mention those options, no one will find them. It'll be fine. But actually, he says that's completely wrong. And you know, people need to be able to trust you. And to trust you, they need to have read your stuff and understand that you know the differences and you can be the thought leader and the authority on it. So yeah, I'm halfway through it. It's very interesting. I reckon recommend it <laughs> it's quite interesting from a website point of view as well because I think that that's something that you're doing with your website anyway with your blog there's lots of the kind of questions on there and obviously things like having frequently asked questions on a blog or on a you know on a website or indeed often my clients have sort of some kind of services brochure that they send out um, as do I which answers those questions from the offset and also addresses any of the concerns that somebody might have. I think those kinds of things are really, are really useful. 
Well, thank you very much. That was a, a really, uh, really interesting and insightful conversation. So if people would like to find out a little bit more, how can they reach you? Yeah, the best way would be to go to my website is firezana.co.uk. On there, I've got my links to my podcast, The Freelance Fix. I've got my blog, which has got loads of resources for freelancers and small business owners. I've also got details about my e-courses on there. Um, or you can hop onto Instagram. I'm always online on there. It's at by.rosanna. That's my username. So yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Liz. Cheers.